All right, Jeff, today we had uh, PJ Caposi on. He's a really down-to-earth guy. I could see why you like him. Yeah, as, as, as you can tell, he is this leader who not only has accomplished some really great things in his community, his district, but in the meantime, he, you know, he's coaching and talking to other leaders throughout the country and beyond. So his influence is, uh, is, is actually pretty darn vast and spreading, and yet he's so willing to talk about Right here are my flaws. Here are my blind spots. Here yeah, are my just strengths. laying it all out on the table. Yeah, yeah it, it was kind of cool. I talked about how his strengths can also be your Achilles heel, right? Sure. And so, and I, I'm sure that you and I can both find places in our lives, professionally and personally, where that's the case. And I can always appreciate when uh, when I feel like leaders are holding themselves accountable and, and not looking at others and pointing the finger too much. I think that's great. That's that's uh, it's definitely something I can I can get behind. So yeah, for, for sure, for sure. And so you know, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to hear in this conversation that I have with PJ, as Chris just mentioned, he does just that. Right. This is a very humble leader doing some great things, but in the meantime, is very willing to admit here are my flaws. And I have to learn every day in order to be a great leader. I have to work on myself all the time. So ladies, gentlemen, enjoy PJ. I know you will. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chat. Today is going to be really fun for me. And therefore, it's going to be engaging for you, not because of anything I bring to the show, but because of our guests. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why here in a second. Um, know this, as I've mentioned many other times, our job is to try to mine what we think are very relevant topics due to the time and the struggles and the challenges and the opportunities that educational leaders are facing throughout the country and beyond and then find the right leaders, the right researchers, the right authors, whatever that may be, to bring you content that is relevant for now. There's, there, there's probably no better person than the person we're gonna be talking to today because the individual we're talking to is not only an expert, it has written numerous pieces um, as a leader, but is also a sitting leader, which by the way is really rare, right? How often are you listening to maybe somebody giving a keynote or maybe being coached by somebody who's also doing the job simultaneously? Well, that is the case today because today here, any minute, we're going to be talking to PJ Capozzi. Now, PJ and I have gotten to know each other a little bit um, and I'm, I'm a big fan I've been able to catch up and read at least a couple of his texts, but you're going to see why here any second that this content is so relevant, so I'm, I'm, I'm definitely pumped. PJ Capozzi is a dynamic speaker and a transformational leader and an educator. PJ began his career as a award-winning teacher in the inner city of Chicago and has recently led significant change in every administrative post he's held. He's become a, he can, became a principal at age 28 and within three years was able to lead a very small town and rural community to historically achieving near the bottom of its county to multiple national recognitions. After four years, PJ moved to his current district, Meridian, uh, CUSD 223 as a superintendent and has led similar turnaround leading to a myriad of national recognitions for multiple different efforts. PJ is a best-selling author and has written eight books. So um, this just made me feel bad about myself. I've been a superintendent myself, but I have not written eight books. Eight books for various publishers. His work and commentary has been featured on sites such as the Washington Post, NPR, CBS This Morning, ASCD, Edutopia, the, Honey, the Huffington Post. Um, his works in educational departments of two different universities and a myriad of capacities with various associations. I could go on and on, but I won't. It would be much more engaging just to have him here talking with us. So without further ado, PJ, welcome. How you doing, my friend? Doing amazing. It's a, it's a wonderful day. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Absolutely. It was great seeing you. We saw each other a few weeks ago here at our summit. Uh, it was just wonderful to have you as 
um, as kind of a, a contributor, but also a learner. Um, really appreciated that opportunity. And I, I, I'm really liking getting to know you and what you bring to the table. So I just want to say thanks. And thanks for taking the time to do this. Well, I'm honored to be here. And the Kanye Summit was uh, incredibly impactful for me. It was one of the first times in years that I got to consume uh, professional development and work solely on, on developing myself and my leadership as opposed to um, being a, a main contributor to a professional development um, effort or uh, conference. And so it was really, really refreshing for me. Well, that's that's great to hear. So let's, you know, let's let's assume that uh, there's there's our, our listeners or don't don't know you. And I read your bio. Look, it's just a bio. So I I, I missed it. Why don't can, maybe you can kind of walk us through you a little bit, help our listeners get to know you, what you bring to the table, your motivation, your why. I mean, of course, I, I didn't mention the 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 t you know your TED talk, which is a great great way for our listeners to also get to view kind of you and your story because you actually start that TED talk with your story, like from the beginning. So you can start there, but just tell us more about who you are and what you're up to these days. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's a loaded question, right? It's always the tell tell us a little about you. For me, I, I kind of go with my origin as a leader. So, you know, if I'm going to nerd out in comic book, you know, fashion. Yeah, nerd out. Story, um, there's there's really three things that are kind of the the fabric of me. Um, the first, as you mentioned, I shared in, in the TED Talk, was that at the age of 17, I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, it was it's my first of three battles um, kind of with that that disease throughout the course of my life, each one at different stages of life, having dramatically different impact, but none more so than, you know, being 17 years old, being a recruited athlete, um, present in my class, like living a dream uh, childhood with parents that were around and cared for me. Like I had every privilege you can think of to all of a sudden um, really battling for, for my life. And as a result of that, um, I am wired now, I think, um, even with therapy, right? Like I, I am pretty hardwired <laughs> to go extremely hard, extremely fast um, all the time. Um, I, I am blessed, I think, in believing that time is not a finite resource. And so I live my life with a sense of urgency and I lead with a sense of urgency, which is, uh, again, a blessing and a curse, right? Because it's uh, not everyone wants to move at the speed of which I, I demand of myself and I demand of, of my organizations. So that'd be kind of the primary thing um, that has helped to, to write the fabric. The secondary thing would be that as my first, I have four children, as my first two kind of came in 15 months apart, I was teaching in the inner city of Chicago. Um, my last year at the school that I served, we had eight students die tragic death. And so juxtaposing the life that my kids were going to have compared to my other set of kids that I was serving in the classroom and just seeing what that difference was is I feel like compelled, like morally and ethically to be the voice for the voiceless and to be the champion for those that are traditionally underserved. Uh, the third thing would be my first year as a principal, my first year as a principal. Uh, you mentioned I was young when I was hired. I, I was not only young, I was bad. Like I was, I was not, I was not a good principal. And um, the foundation of, of that was kind of my conception of leadership. So from the time I was 10 years old, I'd been told I was a leader in everything. I was president of this, captain of that. Like, I don't think there was a single organization or team that I have ever been in or on where I wasn't the captain or the president. And I just kind of assumed that leadership meant the ability to get stuff done and I didn't really conceptualize there's this whole human element of it, right? That we can't policy and program our way to success. And in my first year, I terminated about 20% of my staff. And not to mention, I was the youngest person in the building, I believe as well. So like it was this dramatic culture shift. And I made a lot of correct decisions, but I operated in a lot of incorrect ways. And I remember very vividly, uh, this led to a student and staff walkout in protest of me. And I'm sitting there. <laughs> no confidence, right? This is right. a vote of no confidence. Yeah. Interesting thing. When students protest you during the day, you still have to supervise said students, right? So I am sitting out on a, on a wooden picnic table watching students march in protest of me. And uh, I just remember sitting there. I'm like, I've got 30 years left of this, right? Like, 
something has got to change and that something is going to have to be me. And so in that moment, I kind of, I would love to tell you, like I had this beautiful epiphany and like I, everything made sense. The, the only thing that made sense was that I needed to get better and I needed to learn how to lead. And that has kind of set me on the journey that I've been on and afforded me wonderful opportunities to travel the world and speak and coach and consult um, all while still doing the work that I love and trying to improve the district that I serve. So look, um, this isn't, this, this show's not about me, but let's just do a little comparison for fun. Um, I, I too grew up in kind of an athletic environment where that was very, very important. Um, you know, my dad's a coach, et cetera. Now I was not like you. I was, a, I was a train wreck of a kid. Uh, you know, I did, was not the president. In fact, <laughs> no, I don't even think I would want to be in the same room with the president or they wouldn't allow it. But, um, but I did go to school for my sport, et cetera. And then later, you know, became intrigued and passionate about education. And I was my first principalship. I was 27 years old. Um, and, uh, I learned a lot through trial and error. I mean, I, golly, it was just this, I made some assumptions. I was also the youngest on my staff, had to do everything I could, but also made some incredible mistakes along the way. But it was that kind of humbling environment and process that I think forced some learning that was not easy. Do, do you find as though sometimes it's tough as clearly you've got this engine, you describe this engine that you have, and you're probably a type A, very driven guy. Is that sometimes hard to mesh with the education environment and culture? Or do you think it's just your strategy is wrong? How would you describe that kind of uh, learning that you had along the way? So I think the first thing that I had to learn was that um, I couldn't expect me out of other people. And so, and that didn't mean that I couldn't expect excellence. So I want to be very clear on that. Yeah, good point. I, I like, I think I, I, I still demand excellence, but I don't demand me. And, uh, and I realized that that's not like necessarily giving me a compliment. Like there's a lot of things that I wish I could relax about and not care so deeply about I just can't turn it off. And for me to expect other people to live their life in that same vein is just, I think, fundamentally unfair and unwise. And so for me, it started to, when I started to focus on my job as a leader is to grow other leaders and to develop people so that they can approach whatever their definition of peak performance is. And if I do that, the systems and the organization that I'm going to build on the back end myself together is going to be transformative. We're going to change outcomes as opposed to focusing solely on the outcomes. Then everything shifted for me when I realized that this was a human industry. And for me, like the, the real big light bulb went on is I, I cognitively made that switch. But then when it actually started to like stir my soul, like when I started to have those conversations with people and start to see them move forward in the same way that that always happened for me when working with kids, when that same type of energy occurred when working with adults, then I knew that I was in the right place and that I was going to be able to have success over the long term doing this work. So when was it then, PJ, did you create this, uh, probably this internal and motivational shift for yourself um, that you were not just going to be a leader, but you were going to help other leaders, right? We, we think of that in terms of if you're building principal, you're a superintendent, et cetera. You're trying to constantly build the capacity, uh, the leadership capacity of others. That's obviously very important. A person doesn't have to have a title to be a leader, et cetera. However, you and your role now, not just through you know, some of the things that you've written, but also some of the things that you talk about and that you coach, at what point in time did you think, I can expand my sphere of influence, not just by leading a district or a school, but by helping other leaders do the same? When did that happen? And then what was that transition like? So I'd love to tell you, like, it was a wonderful five-year plan that I etched out, but it's really just a, a series of happy accidents that kind of coincide. Then all of a sudden, yeah. I realized, okay, here, here we are, and I have this really, really incredible opportunity that now I can either kind of double down and seize, or I might just, you know, you never know when another opportunity or moment is going to kind of coalesce. So kind of at the same time that all of the things that I had been thinking about 
in terms of shifting my leadership approach had kind of taken hold in the school that I served. And all of a sudden our, our data was exploding and people are starting to take notice all over our region. Um, I that correspondingly were, was invited to speak at a couple of things. And I started, I, the first time I really wrote, it was for an extra credit project for grad school. Hey, if you get this published <laughs> on Edutopia, you get extra credit. So I signed to Edutopia that turned into a book contract offer that I never expected. And then all of a sudden we're, we're rolling, right? Like, so it was never um, this strategy. Now I'd be lying if I said, if you would ask me at 28, I would have told you that a lifelong dream to be a published author and to be able to take a stage and keynote. Like, so that was all in the back of the mind, but it was, there was no strategy, right? Like it was just a bunch of happy accidents and then trying to seize the moment. Well, I, number one, it's important to, I appreciate the honesty, right? Because, you know, it's, I think sometimes uh, even other leaders likely, you've probably experienced this, become just in, intimidated. Like how, I made the joke about you've written these books. I mean, that that blows me away. I mean, I'm I'm messing around with that right now and it just blows me away. I, I never thought I'd be able to write a dissertation a long time ago, but you just kind of trip into it somehow and it just happens. So it sounds like um, you're very humble in the fact that, you know, one thing at a time and it just kind of led to where you're, all the things that you're doing now, which is really an incredible resume. Well, it's interesting because a lot of times leaders talk about boundaries and knowing when to say no. And uh, my coach harps on me all the time about that still. And for me, it's, I don't know when these opportunities are going to come back around. And if I start saying no, um, what I've I've learned is like the the when I keynote a big conference, right? And I think it's this massive opportunity. Sometimes it is, and then sometimes it isn't. And then all of a sudden I'm at a regional conference in Albany and it leads to this massive influence and this work and this introduction. So for me, I think if anything for any leader listening to this is say no if it's going to influence and gonna take away your joy and it's gonna take away your soul and your ability to do your work. But if not, just keep saying yes, because you never know which one of these things is going to be the the, the opportunity that connects you to someone who connects you to someone um, who either gives you an opportunity to write or speak. But for me, it's been much more important. Like I've met really smart people, really well-intentioned people really, that I can either help or they can help me. And that to me has been the reward of this um, on top of all of the other things that happen to, to come along the way. Well, let me... Um, once again, appreciate your humility and then maybe just uh, pump you up just a little bit more before we dive into some more questions. So ladies and gentlemen, too, I'm, I'm talking about PJ from two very specific texts. Uh, one called uh, Cracking the Code, uh, Cracking the Coaching Code, Using Your Personality Archetypes to Maximize Performance. So there's that. And then Manage Your Time or Your Time Will Manage You. I was fascinated the first time I talked to PJ months ago. And I was, I don't know, venting or complaining or something around, you know, the tyranny of the urgent that I'm often talking about that administrators and leaders are facing today. He mentioned this book and I thought, oh, you're kidding me. You, you've written on this topic. It was like this, this, this beautiful intersection. So know that some of the queries I'll be poking PJ about are really aligned to these texts and, 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 and you'll see that here in a minute. But before we get into that, PJ, you and I do share this um, this common worry, uh, or this worry that you and I both have, and let's just spend some time venting before we maybe look at some solutions. So, the concern is around leadership. Like you and I have talked about this, right? That there's this urgency and this concern that that at times, not as though we don't have the right leaders, but sometimes our leaders are not leading. And that can be due to some conditions, that can be due to some of the way those leaders have been conditioned into the role. Um, there's a variety of factors, but let's, let's maybe kind of delve into this void of leadership or sometimes the transition of leadership. There's lots of different data points we could talk about, but the concern is that leaders sometimes are not leading or they're not in a place to lead. And I think you and I would both agree that leaders are the answer and this is simultaneously. So it may be our number one complaint, but we also maybe would agree that it's the number one solution. Yeah, I could not say that any better. Yes, you so, could. Go ahead. <laughs> so like <laughs> the way that I always look at it is as soon as we 
give away ownership of the problem. As soon as we start blaming, as soon as we start complaining, as soon as we start defending our own actions, we're taking away our own agency. So when we look at organizations or education at large or whatever it happens to be, and we start talking about whatever the ailment of the day is, and we don't start off by saying, what are we doing wrong as a leader? Or what are we doing collectively wrong in terms of leadership? Then what we're doing is just forfeiting our own agency and ownership in the process in order to, to improve. So like, there's nothing that, that irks me more than when I sit around either state level, national level, local level, superintendent meetings, and it's the state this, it's this policy that, and we're not talking about us and in, in what we, we are doing because it's possible. Like what I always go back to is that it is it is fundamentally possible. There are people that are doing it and there are people that are doing it with the same weird legislation or the same funding difficulties. Or the same. It is possible. So what are we doing to, to look internally to continually to grow? So for me, the, the challenge that I give to principals, to superintendents, to district office personnel, whatever it is, like I always just go back to when is the last time you've invested in you? Because what I find is what we are dealing with right now is this large-scale burnout, right? We, we have people leaving the profession in Exodus. Certified staff are, are leaving for the last two-plus years at 250-plus a day nationally. So we have this massive Exodus. The question for me is, like, with burnout, what are you doing to grow you? Because that, to me, is always a telltale sign. When people quit developing themselves is when they're on the verge of burnout. And I know because I've been burnt out, right? And I can tell you that that is what has happened to me. And so for me, it's always about what are we doing to invest and grow and get better ourselves? Because as soon as we take that step to invest and grow and better ourselves, then almost like magically, right? Like the, the skies part and angels sing, then all of a sudden we take ownership again. But when we are in the blame mode, almost never does that involve commensurate professional growth. And so for me, I'm obsessed with developing myself. I read multiple books a week, right? And so that is because I know that that will always keep me fresh. And if I'm fresh, then I'm going to be able to better serve others. And that's just the challenge. The The problem is leadership. The solution is leadership. And for me, it goes down to what are we doing to invest in ourselves so that we can better serve others? You know, you, you hit on a really important point just now. And we, we know there's a mass exodus of leadership right now happening throughout the country, right? So um, we know the data on, you know, having the maybe the highest educated, but the the least experienced uh, leader force that we've ever had in this country. We know that's going to continue. Um, but what you told me, and I, I took notes the first time we were chatting, preparing for this, you were saying that if we keep telling people that this work is hard um, and we're, we are spinning the wrong narrative and the wrong brand, you said. And in fact, you said, listen, if we don't shift from blaming, complaining, and defending once again, we are constantly spinning the wrong narrative. T tell, tell us more about how do we, because the reality is the work is hard and it is stressful and it is challenging. People are burnt out. So we want to be honest about that. But by being maybe too honest or spinning that too much, what are we doing to the, you know, relative to the trust that people are bestowing upon us to actually lead systems that impact our most valuable commodity, which is kids? So I love this work, right? So it's one of those opportunities like, and, and you know, that like any, I, my belief is, especially when you get into the superintendent world, if you're successful in the superintendency, you get a, an absurd amount of job offers outside of the superintendency, right? right? So like, and I don't ever want to leave because I love the work. Like I get fired up every day to come in because if I make the right decision, if I, I get to potentially impact the trajectory of someone's life. And as the leader of a school system, if I can do that in mass and I'm, I'm impacting kids and, and potentially generations of kids, like that is, again, I get real, real excited about it. Like I can't put into words without cussing, right? Like how excited that makes me. <laughs> and so like when we constantly are talking about like, well, it's so hard, the politics, the this, the that, I knew that when I got into the job. I think everyone knew that when they got into the job. So I often use this example, and some people it really resonates, some people it doesn't. But I know right now there's nobody in the world that could tell you more negative things about me than my wife. There's nobody in the world that knows me better. She could tell you all of the negative things about me. But I believe that she focuses on the positive and accentuates that. When I talk about hers, it's the same, right? Like nobody knows her, 
her missteps more than me, but like I will tell you that she's the most loving, giving, like perfect for me person that I could imagine finding. I feel the same way about my job. I know all the hard parts, but the same way that I wouldn't get on the news and talk about the bad parts of my wife, I'm not going to get on the news talk about the bad parts about being a school leader because as a school leader, it has given me a purpose. It has given me a why. It has given me more successes and more fulfillment than I can possibly imagine. And what all we do is talk about how hard it is. It just is a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, well, why would kids want to go into this? We talk about how underpaid we are. We talk about how overstressed we are. And both of things, those things could, in theory, be true. But when that's all we share, and then we say, well, no, really, you know, talented, smart, the, the best of the best don't want to come into this profession. It's like, well, no kidding, because we've told them it's terrible for 10 years. And so at some point, if we want this to change, I think we have to change our thinking first. It's not just the narrative, because if we really think it's that bad, then to me, that goes back to the professional development, professional, personal growth. Because if you really think it's that bad, then get out. I guarantee you can make more money doing something else, right? So like for me, I... You know, I'm a small district. I've got a $25 million budget and 300 employees. If I was doing that in the private world, I'd be making a lot more money. And so if, if you're unhappy, go. But I don't. I just think that if we have the, the cognition to say, hey, A, I chose this. B, if I want to bring people to this, we should talk about the really amazing parts because every day there's amazing parts if we choose to look at it that way. Have a little gratitude in it, then maybe we get to spin the narrative and the brand the right way that education, to me, is the greatest job in the world. Yeah, well said. Okay, so let's let's now kind of start delving into some of the some of the solutions specific to the leader because like we've 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 created this understanding that you and I together that yeah, we know leadership is a problem and we know it's a solution. But so much of your work and your input is around being very pragmatic for leaders, right? So um, starting with cracking the coaching code, um, you know, you give the kind of these, these three key ingredients, right? Self-awareness, decisiveness, and the ability to take action. But this is, this is what I love, PJ, is that you talk about this, this self-awareness. I think that we sometimes skip over that, which is maybe why you, you really appreciated when we were here at the summit that we weren't talking about a theme. The theme was the leader. It's you. So how do you develop as a leader? Well, that's what you're focused on. You've got to know yourself first. So walk us through why that self-awareness is so critical to the foundations of learning as a leader over time. So I'll start with an analogy and then get kind of into the, the roots. Uh, it's a quick story about my wife. Yeah. So sweetest and, person And, and in the your world. wife knows that this is, that, I mean, you've come to an agreement that you get to talk to her, talk about her like this. I mean, I you're not going to get in trouble. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm I just, willing to take the shot. I'm willing okay, to take got the it, shot. Got it. I just wanted right, to hear. Yes, okay. Uh, yeah. Full eyes wide open. Eyes okay. wide open going All into right. the danger. All right. Um, so uh, I had worked out one night in, in our bedroom and that night I got up about two in the morning to go to the bathroom because now I'm at the age where you don't sleep through the night anymore. And uh, I barefoot kicked a dumbbell. So if you've ever done that, you know what. So I'm hopping around on one foot. I'm cussing. My wife sits up. She's like, what happened? I'm like, I kicked the dumbbell. And she's like, do you need anything? I'm like, no, no. I'll just go. And so I'm hobbling off to the bathroom. By the time I get back out of the bathroom, my wife has gone down, got an ice bag and, and, and ready to take care of me again because she's the, the world's nicest person. About a week later, I do the exact same thing, kick the same dumbbell. And my wife sits up in bed and uh, she's like, what happened? I'm like, I kicked the dumbbell again. And she's like, honey, why don't you move the blanking dumbbells? Yeah. And that to me is leadership. That to me is self-awareness. All we have to do is figure out how to move our dumbbells. Every person that I've coached, every person I've had the privilege of serving as a leader, the vast majority of their mistakes are rooted in very, very similar behavior. And so if we can just develop the self-awareness to figure out what those dumbbells are and how to move them, then I think we are like, like in the top 10% of leaders already in terms of self-awareness. And I know that sounds like a dramatic oversimplification, but if you're listening to this right now and be like, that's not me, then I just encourage you think about the people you coach and you lead and think about the mistakes they make. And are they all thematically aligned? So almost every mistake that I've made as a leader is about me trying to assert dominance or control. And when I can be self-aware enough to realize that when I am not in a really healthy space, when I am not thinking about serving others, that when I am stressed or per particularly whenever I'm insecure, then my, my 
almost base reaction is to try to secure control or to dominate. And that is usually antithetical to the leadership style that I like to project. And I cause my own problems. Now, is that the same for everyone? No, I think everyone has different things, but we have to figure out what those base things are because almost all of the problems I had personal life and professional life rooted back to the same things. And so if we can just develop awareness around that, I think, again, we're going to put ourselves in terms of self-awareness markedly ahead of the average. And then we can really start to make some some deeper improvements because like an onion, there's layers to us, right? So that's just the first layer. There's lots of layers. But if we can just get through that first layer, we're way ahead of the, the masses. Why do you think, PJ, that, um, or maybe I'll ask a question and you can just say that's, you're wrong, but why do you think, well, why do you think we skip this step so much? I, I think sometimes our, our training as leaders, right, you and I have been to principal school, superintendent school, whatever you refer to it as, um, that we really, really get into management and to content and instructional leadership. Why do you think that we tend to skip over or skim over or not demand in terms of the development that leaders focus on is focusing on themselves, some of their strengths and weaknesses, and then honing those so we don't continually kick the dumbbell? What What is it about our leadership, either, oh, I don't know, programs or expectations that we don't know ourselves well? Am I, am I wrong about that? I mean, because I your advice seemed to me like so kind of beautiful and pragmatic. So why do you think there's not more of it? I think there's two reasons. Um, one is the system-wide approach, and then the second is kind of the more individual. The system-wide approach is that I think it's soft. It's a soft, and so I, like I don't like the term soft skills because those are typically the most important skills, right? Uh -huh. So I, it, it's kind of, but... It's a soft topic of which I don't think many people find themselves to be qualified to speak on. And in fact, the most trepidation I've had before writing a book was probably cracking the coaching code because it's hard to assert expertise in an area such as. And so I think it just becomes really hard to become an expert in those areas. And I think as a result, um, I think people are hesitant to, to speak on it. Um, I do think that there, there's a more pragmatic answer, though. And I think uh, most people that are in leadership positions have gotten there because of very similar to what I just talked about with our self-sabotaging behaviors, have gotten there because they've repeated the same behaviors that have been successful for them. And um, what I have found is that the same behaviors that make me uniquely skilled as a leader are like the very first cousin to the same behaviors that sabotage. <laughs> so like the, the, my willingness to be absurdly direct, my willingness to confront any obstacle, my ability to run toward the crisis instead of away from it is really, really close to asserting dominance and control. And so I think that most people like th that dumbbell, that proverbial dumbbell is very close to most people's superpower too. And so being able to dissect and be like, yes, so to use a different example, your superpower is your empathy and your ability to connect and relate to others because you can walk into any room and you make people feel like family. But that also means you constantly focus on serving them and then don't demand excellence from them, right? Like, so again, superpower, Achilles heel, right next to each other. Yeah. So I think that that is another reason we avoid it because we don't want to have happen. When I first kind of dove into becoming a much more self-aware human being, what I did was try to erase all of the things that also made me really successful. And so it's it's not about finding fault for me. It's, it's just about becoming more aware, but then also being able to say, I'm going to double down on my strengths. At the same time, I'm still going to work on mitigating my weaknesses and at least be a little bit more aware about why and when I exhibit the behaviors that are counter to what I'm trying to accomplish. And and as you know, and as you even mentioned in the in the cracking the coaching code, that there's a variety of ways you can kind of assess, you know, your yourself. You, here, though, you really lean in on the the enneagram, right? And so, and then for a variety of chapters, kind of throughout the, the the middle portion of the book, you're then giving the kind of this very specific breakdown. If you're this type, then right, here's the considerations to make. So, how did you narrow in on that? particular assessment and why did that stick for you? So I think I've taken just about every yeah, yeah. personality <laughs> behavioral assessment and uh, psychologically like 
we like them because our brain likes learning about the brain and behavior. So like it, it, they're, they're quasi addicting. So I, the, in, in honing in on the Enneagram, it's not to be dismissive of any of the others, right? So if you're a Myers-Briggs guy, a disc guy or whatever, whatever it is, cool. Um, Enneagram for me was the first one that actually helped me get better. So everyone else helped me to understand where I was at. When I took Enneagram, when I first started reading about it, um, one of the things I read about my my type, which I'm a type eight. So for anyone that speaks Enneagram, I'm an eight. I'm an eight wing nine to be specific. It said that eights can come across condescending in meetings. And this is when I really bought in because I've tried to be <laughs> a lot of things in meetings before. Like I've tried to be direct. I've tried to be assertive. I've tried to be confrontational even, right? Um, but I never walked into a meeting and said, I want someone to think I'm really condescending at the end of this meeting. And so when I read this at this point, I was in pretty, you know, multiple years of my leadership team. And at the end of our next meeting, I said, hey, guys, um, got something for you. Do, do I come across condescending in meetings? And it was like bobbleheads. And I was like, oh, my God, because it was a total blind spot. Like of all of the things that I might've said I needed to work on, I would have never, ever told you that I can come across condescending in meetings. And so when that happened for me, I'm like, all right, I'm in on this, right? Like as much as I can take in about this, then I can continue to learn about myself and find blind spots. Because what I found is like, one of the things I speak about, which a lot of people disagree with, but whatever, is that like reflection is a great strategy, but it's limited. And okay. if it, no matter how much we want to reflect, we either need a coach or something else to provoke deeper thinking for us. And I employ multiple coaches for myself, um, sticking with the theme of personal growth and development. But and that's why I read so much because then I can counter my thoughts off of those. But Enneagram showed me blind spots. And so as soon as it did that, like it's forever with me now. And, and so the deeper I've gotten, the more blind spots I've seen. Um, and as I got into it, my other relationships improved as well. And one of the things that I learned most acutely through this, and this sounds so silly that I had to learn it, but it had to deal with my relationship with my wife and in learning more about her personality archetype, I realized that a lot of her behaviors that were somewhat confounding to me had nothing to do with me. And I know that, right? Because a lot of my behaviors had nothing to do with her. They're just how I'm wired. But just learning that allowed me to have this massive like weight lifted off of my shoulder, plus this massive chip lifted off of my shoulder as well with some of the behaviors. And so once I started to learn that and understand, then it allowed me to serve people better because I could ask better questions, I could probe, I could coach in a much different way. And I just wanted to expose people to that, and in particular in the, the coaching realm, which we can get into if you want to, as to why I think it's important to delve in that way. Well, let's let's actually, let's go into coaching because, you know, one thing I, I really appreciate about this is, is the focus on this, you know, need for coaching. You mentioned the five activities for success, just all this pragmatic advice based upon your, you know, your type and so forth throughout the book. But really, so much of it is this like metacognition and self-awareness, but also coaching. You mentioned my coach, right? So a lot of people would be fascinated. Whoa, 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 PJ, the coach, my coach has a coach. So t let's, let's talk about that coaching process because that clearly is what you're driving home in this book. The, I, <laughs> I think I almost lost my job about seven years ago if it wasn't for my coach. Okay. And um, again, it was a blind spot. And he got me to a place of understanding and vulnerability that I would have, I don't think I was capable of getting myself with hundreds of hours of reflection. Um, and I, I'll tell a story, um, and even though it's embarrassing, but I, I lost my temper in a board meeting and I called my board members a, a name that I should not have called them. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh my gosh. And it was, okay. and this was a closed session, right? So yeah, yeah. Closed. Okay. Um, so the next morning I come into my office at 6 a.m. and my board president is waiting for me. I'm like, I think I'm just going to get fired here. Like, I think this is it, right? Yeah. And uh, so we had an argument about what happened, what led me to say what I said, and, and, and we're pretty close. And so after 90 minutes, we hugged it out and we were good. But there was also the board vice president that I called this thing as well. And so we had, uh, <laughs> so, uh, we set up a meeting and we went to have a beer and talk it out and we ended up, and I don't know if you've ever done this with maybe your significant other or someone that you're close to, but we just had the same argument just louder. Oh, no, no, uh, I've never, no, no, that's only you. Right, yeah. Okay, I haven't, I haven't done right, that. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we rehashed it. So we tried that. We tried this conversation three times. We tried it once in an office, once over coffee, once over beers, same thing each time. 
So I called my coach the first day and I told him what happened. And he's like, well, why were you so angry? And I was like, we have one rule as a board, no surprises. They surprised me. And so he called me every day for 23 consecutive days and asked me that single question of which I want, I felt so patronized. Right. And then finally on day 23, he's like, why were you so angry about this? And I said, they hurt my feelings. They hurt my feelings. He's like, hang up and call and tell him that. So I hung up, called the vice president. I said, you hurt my feelings. Because every conversation we had before that was you violated protocol, then I violated our ethical yeah. norms, and you were wrong, I was wrong, whatever. And we spun in circles. When I told him that he hurt my feelings, which I would have never gotten to on my own, we hugged it up. And and as a result, there, there will never be anything that – any point in my career where I think that I am too good for a coach. Like that – that, in fact, I employ more coaches now. I apply multiple coaches because they bring different perspectives and I go to them for different things. So I, I just, any leader that is not investing in themselves. In education, I just wrote an op-ed on this. In the Fortune 500 world, CEOs all have coaches and they're like $100,000 coaches. And like we stress out about spending $3,000 on a coach for, for ourselves. It's, it's completely, we're like very unique in the professional world at our dismissal of executive and leadership coaching. And then we're terrible in terms of compensation for high quality executive and leadership coaches. So the, you know, what's interesting is that I, first off where my challenge is I, I could, we could talk for a long time about this and I, but I do need to ask you about managing your time because there's some pieces in there that I, I want to stand out, but in your story, even about yourself, and you say this could be embarrassing that that level of humility for leaders, I think, must be a really critical agreement. And, and I mean, understanding that that is, if that is not present, how are we going to ever be self-realized or actually be coached? I think that that seems to be a bit of a dilemma that sometimes leaders get swallowed up into the seats and then, you know, they can start to think like, I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. I need to own this room. And then before you know it, they uh, forget of all of their own flaws and then maybe start blaming others. I, humility just seems to be something that you are constantly demonstrating that that's got to be an ingredient, isn't it? I think so. I, I mean, I, but I also think insecurity um, breeds into it and, and a, a lack and, and a, I think we measure quite a bit in schools um, in different ways. So um, I'll, I'll talk about the insecurity for a second. Okay. If um, So if as a superintendent, right, there's whatever, 10,000 of us nationally, who would we typically get as executive or leadership coaches? People that have maybe done the work before or, you know, so for me, like one's a, a, a CEO of a, a, of a company, right? Because I feel like it's related, but most people don't want to bring in another superintendent to coach themselves because it I think it breeds insecurity. So there's a couple that I coach that won't let me invoice them as PJ Capozzi. I have to invoice them as my consulting company so that their board doesn't see that I'm coaching them. So like that that to me is the level of insecurity. The other thing is like leadership isn't necessarily um, directly attributable to district size. And so <laughs> like there are some amazing leaders of 800 student districts and there are some really struggling leaders of 20,000 student districts. Yeah. Um, and I think we do some of that measuring and say like, well, only these people that were in this size district are qualified to do that. And like leadership is leadership. And uh, for me, like working with a marketing executive right now has been transformational for me that knows nothing about school. Like, so if we're willing to look like it's one of those things when the student is willing to look, the teacher will appear, it's there. And I think that goes down to the humility, but I think two things that present that are just insecurity and then the constant measuring we do in terms of, of district size and, and, and title to the point where I think we do it at the national level too. So like I was a finalist for national superintendent of the year. I was the smallest district ever represented as a finalist for national super of the year. Are you serious? Yeah. And oh, throughout the nation, I'm still a top 50% district in terms of student size. So like, if we're going to say the only people that can be recognized for great work are going to be the soups that serve, you know, districts over 5,000 kids, then great, then say it, right? But there, I just think there's these other judgments that that come along with that. So, uh, you know, you've heard me talk on this before. I, I want to say this too publicly in our conversations, people can hear this. And as a superintendent who's been in three different districts, 
all different sizes from on the smaller side to what would be considered large and then to extremely large. I just want to say um, the concept of challenge related to size and talent related to size, um, that's, it's malarkey. Um, and you can ask my wife. She would tell you the level of stress and anxiety and challenge that you bring home because of the job is the same. Sometimes different strategy, but the same. And my mentor, who's no longer here, the, the person I followed and I thought I wanted to be more like Tom, he was the, he was the best leader I've ever known. And uh, his system was minute. And I could never lead like him. It, size as it relates to the district. And I think you're right. I think we get fascinated with that concept. And sadly, it's just not true. It's just not true. So that stat that you mentioned, that's uh, frustrating to me, but it's also pretty telling. I, I appreciate you bringing it up. So let's talk about time. As you know, time, right? This most valuable commodity is the, you know, the tyranny of the urgent I describe. I mean, it is swallowing people up now more than when you wrote this book, by the way. 100%. Right? Right. So when you, it's almost like you, you somehow knew, but when you wrote this, right, manage your time or your time will manage you, the world was different than it is now. This is more relevant now, in my opinion, than even when you put it out there. But you talk about these types of people and how they manage their their time, which once again is very pragmatic because you can kind of describe, oh, I'm the, I'm this guy, I'm this woman. Therefore, I should consider the following. Walk us through why you knew this would be really important and how you see it kind of playing out in this day and age. So truth is, I didn't know it'd be really important. Again, so <laughs> it is. I, uh, and the, the, the backstory is that I, I sent a book to ASCD, who I'm very connected with on teacher evaluation. Uh, and they said, we're that's kind of a, a subject we're avoiding for a couple of years because it was kind of right in the heat of you know, evaluation wars or whatever we want to call it. And uh, they called back like, but we really liked your writing. Would you like to write on time management? So so ASCD saw, I didn't, I just had, got the ability to research and then and then write on it. Um, and I will say now when I speak on it, I speak probably only about 10% of the book and about 90% of, of new material that I found because this has become, um, if I'm an expert on anything, it's this now, because this is the thing that I, I love and is the most confounding to me that we can't make it work. Uh, so at the time I wrote, I focused on a lot of people that I had coached and that had struggled through this and tried to essentially archetype them like, Hey, this person is always struggling because they're always serving others and doing other people's jobs instead of their own. And then between four and eight at night, they're doing their own job. And then they're tired and angry all the time. Let's talk about how we can help with them. This person is constantly disorganized, but refuses to get organized and then is upset because their job takes too long and they can't get stuff done. And so I was able to kind of go through and be like, all right, these are the strategies that I would use and to, to move through. But it was important to me because I've always viewed time management like a diet um, because every diet works, right? Like you want to go keto, great. You want to go uh, carnivore, great. You want to go Atkins, great. whatever. They all work. Every time management strategy works, you just got to use it. And so the issue isn't a lack of strategies. In fact, when ASCD asked me to write the book, first thing I did was go on Amazon. There's over 10,000 books on it. I'm like, the market's flooded, but okay, right? And and so I, I read a bunch of them and they're all saying all these tips and these tips are great, but it doesn't help unless you actually recognize, have the self-awareness to be like, all right, this is why I continue to make this mistake. And if I continue to make this mistake, then at, like, at some point I have to have the metacognition and the ability to go ahead and address that because any of the tips and techniques you give are going to be fleeting, just like a diet. If you use them, great. And so typically, if someone goes into a time management seminar or a keynote, next 28 days might be great. And then going to go right back to where you were before. And I just wanted to avoid that if I was going to write on the subject. You know, this is what, 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 what Schmoker tells us even about instructional strategies. His point in his leader chat was, uh, listen, we already know. We already naturally know all the instructional – we're pretty bloated as it relates to knowledge specific to pedagogy. The dilemma is actually executing with fidelity. If we did that, kind of game over. Our dilemma is actually doing that, right? So um, I hear a common theme there for sure. Yeah. Okay, so you and I are um, 
here we are. This is the one piece of content the Leadership Circle really does to push out. Other than that, as you've experienced a little bit, our our, our goal is getting people around a table, right? Circles are better than rows. So if you and I were to pretend we're around a table with other leaders, superintendents all the way down through principals, um, but, you know, you're going to give your elevator speech on, listen, here's my advice for you right now. Here's my kind of pragmatic, nitty-gritty, kind of drop-the-mic moment. What would you advise leaders to think about in this day and age? What's your... What, what, what are your words of wisdom right now? So I'll close it the same way I close each of my keynotes. Regardless of what topic it is, I always find a way, find a yeah, way yeah. to close it. Right, right? And it's it's funny because, like I shared, like I'm a pretty voracious reader and consumer of really relatively intellectual content. Um, the quote that I like to close with, I heard on a uh, mixed martial arts podcast. Um, so um, kind of full circle. But th the quote was simple, and it said that, uh, for me, the definition of hell is on my last day on earth, I get to meet the man or woman I could have become. And, oh. and, and the hope, right? Like the hope for me as a leader is that if that were true, that the people that I have the privilege of serving would just look in a mirror, right? Because they've become the person that they could have become. And that's my, that's my why, right? Like I want, I want that person to have the experience of, of the person they could have become be, becoming actualized. And that's what I want for myself. And that's why I go so hard, right? Like, so to tie it back to the first question of why do you go so hard? Why do you go so fast? It's because I don't, I don't trust how long I get to be here. So I'm going to do everything I can to put a debt, my own little debt in the universe. Um, and so that, that would be the advice is, is what are you doing right now to ensure that that person on that day would be you looking right back at you? Well said. And PJ, um, I want, I want you to know, of course, how much I appreciate your time. Um, but more than that, that you, that you continue to, to, to go hard, as you describe, but in a way that is as humble um, and as honest um, and as pragmatic as you've been doing. I, I think that your contributions um, have, are making an impact, but more importantly, um, from one leader to another, um, it's it's far from over for you. And um, what I know from our listeners and the people engaged in this, that um, they will just appreciate someone who's who's doing it and teaching it simultaneously, which is a very, very sometimes challenging but important place to be. So thank you for sitting in that place and stepping up to the plate as it relates to that work. Um, we really, really respect and honor you and uh, just have a really value this time together with you, PJ. Thank you very much. Opportunity was great. Okay. Well, take care, my friend. Be well. You too. Ladies and gentlemen, see? See what I'm saying? Educators, leaders, uh, you, you, you have to think about some, th think about yourself. As PJ describes, think about yourself. Come to that place of self-actualization so that you as a leader can constantly improve. And I, I urge you, to, to, to read some of the texts that we described, to think about some of the advice, because once again, this is not just a professor telling you, this is somebody who's doing the work alongside of you, maybe in a different place, but similar challenges, similar successes. Um, this has been a great discussion. So once again, leaders, educators, teachers, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for the noble work that you do. Be well. <laughs>